Hi, my name is Aisha Small. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Youth and Education podcast, where I interview interesting guests to explore developments in education, research and policy that affect young people, primarily in the UK. This podcast is brought to you by the Youth Think and Action Tank, LKM Co. Welcome to episode five of the Youth and Education podcast. I talked to Ellie Mulcahy. Ellie is an educational researcher, former early years teacher and fellow LKM co-associate. We discuss Ellie's evaluation of the sound training programme and their pilot in prisons. Ellie outlines what lessons teachers can learn from the success of the programme when applying them to what she calls difficult customers in schools. We also explore the importance of repetition and how a high challenge needs to be applied to all learners, not just those to perceive to be high ability. Let's get geeking. LKM co-believes society should ensure all children and young people receive the support they need to make a fulfilling transition to adulthood. Find us at lkmco.org. Can we listen to it now? Ellie, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Good. And yourself? Does anybody ever ask the interviewer how they are? Do you know what? That's a good question. No. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> no, I'm doing well, thank you very much. Um, so today we're going to talk about your, it's not a report, it's an evaluation, right? Yes. Um, of sound training. Do you want to tell me a little bit about what sound training is and why it's important? Um, so sound training is a company that has a particular way of um, teaching and they have a course for, usually for children. Um, so they've been running their programme in schools um, for a number of years with quite a lot of success mm. and it is run as an intervention to improve reading ability and reading age um, and it's all to do with vocabulary and um, building pe- um, children's reading fluency. Um, whereas the report um, is based on their pilot programme into prisons where they went into three prisons across the country and um, worked with groups of learners in prisons, um, delivering the same programme that they deliver in school to improve um, the learners, the men in prisons, reading age and and reading ability. So the report is based on an evaluation that I carried out, um, both qualitative and looking at the actual quantitative improvement in their reading age, um, and wrote up. Why... Why should we care about this report? Because it's, you know it's in prisons, and usually the kind of things that we're talking about, people who are listening to us, are people who work with young people, possibly in schools mm-hmm. or that kind of a setting. So, what do you think is important as a takeaway from this report related to people like that? Yeah, so I think I think there's two things that um, make it important. Um, the first being that although it isn't relevant, it's possibly something that we should all care about and think about um, from both like a moral standpoint of the fact that. You know, we do need to think about what we want to do with people in prisons. We do want to think about how we might improve their life chances to reduce crime. And also from a cost point of view, because it costs a lot to have people in prisons and they're not contributing to the economy. So we kind of want to think about how we can improve that situation. But I also think it's relevant because I think there are takeaways that apply to, first of all, schools in general and education in general and the way that we teach reading but also um, to the kind of perhaps difficult customers that some teachers um, in a variety of settings might deal with and the fact that you know, prisoners might be considered your ultimate difficult customer when it comes to education um, and yet this programme managed to do really well at engaging them and also had quite tangible benefits for those people so we can think about what learning we can take from the programme um, to use with students um, or young people in any other setting 
um, even though they might not be engaged by sort of like traditional reading um, methods or interventions. Okay, so do you want to elaborate a little bit more in kind of what the specific takeaways are in terms of, as you call them, difficult customers? Yeah, so um, I'll try to tell you a bit about the programme, so I'll sort of tell you how that applies. So um, I like to think of the programme as kind of um, the step up from phonics, whereas phonics uses sounds um, and children usually um, learn to identify sounds and blend them together to read a word. Um, this kind of takes it a step up by looking at syllables and how you blend them together to read longer words. Um, so the learners learn the pronunciation of lots of syllables, lots of very common syllables, and there is a number of um, very common syllables in English. Um, so they learn to pronounce those fluently, and then they're able to break words that they haven't seen um, before down. So they might read something like dislocation, dislocation. Um, so it helps their reading fluency, and then it also looks at what each of those component parts of the word might mean, looking at its Latin and Greek roots, and just the root, what the root meaning of um, each prefix and suffix and root words are. Um, but it uses little short bursts of tasks, in sort of chunked up, um, with a bit of a competitive element. Um, and everything you do, if, if a learner does it independently, they do it twice. So they might do like a little spelling test, um, the sound trainer, the person leading it, will sort of read the words out and break them down. The learners will do the spelling test and then they'll mark it and then they'll just do it again straight away. Um, so I think the things that really worked um, for the programme were the com competition. Um, the, the learners in prison absolutely loved it. These, you know, these guys that really don't read and didn't have much of an interest in it and were really sceptical. And then a couple of weeks down the line, they were kind of going mental, like trying to get read more syllables in a minute than the group or than they did last week and getting really into it in a really kind of, and also supporting each other and being you know like you'll do this this time you know we'll, we can do it we can get this many we got 72 last time in a minute we're like what should we aim for we can get 80 and kind of were quite engaged by that um, and then I think they were also engaged by the challenge of um, the learning about the sort of complex meanings of those um, of, of the words that were kind of high level compared to what they might have been used to if they were doing qualifications at perhaps quite a low level. So I think having that challenge and um, that competitive element really engaged the learners. And I think trying to either do something similar to this or think about how we bring those elements into teaching in other settings um, is quite important and a good takeaway from this report. Yeah, okay, so you talk about other settings. Um, when you were talking about difficult customers, for example, I was thinking maybe like Prue's alternative provision. Yeah. What kind of thing are you thinking about? Yeah, I'm thinking about that, you know, Prue's alternative provision, um, youth vendor institutes, um, but also just, you know, perhaps that group of, um, I mean, I guess you could go either way with it because the programme is designed to work middle to high ability learners who have perhaps plateaued um, and perhaps lacking interest in what they're doing and it's used as a sort of booster for them but I also imagine you know with a group of it did seem that without stereotyping massively in terms of gender the sort of male element of competitive in learn competitiveness in learning seemed to come out not to say that girls don't enjoy that as well but you know you can imagine a group of you know year eight year nine kids who kind of really don't have much interest in literacy and think it is also all sort of big boring books and are really resistant to doing anything, um, especially if they have quite low self-esteem, perceive themselves to not be very good. 
and so are oh, you going to sit me down again and you're going to give me like you know some really simple books or some simple things to read or we're just going to go over and over the same thing that we've done before whereas this it isn't it's you know sort of like you've got to get this you're in competition with yourself so there's always you're always improving and actually you know we're going to be taking some really high level vocabulary but it's accessible to them because they're breaking it down but suddenly they might feel like, okay, this is a bit of a challenge. This isn't always like the easy stuff, which I, sh you know, m makes them feel like they're behind where they should be. So the thing that I found interesting, possibly surprising, when I think of prisoners, it might be stereotype, but when I think of prisoners, I kind of think in general, the prison population of people who maybe haven't done that well in school and they end up in prison. Um, so maybe the literacy is not that great, but the kind of main selection group for sound training were, as you said, middle to high ability. So can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, so um, your, your stereotype, although obviously applied to everybody would technically be a stereotype, is in some ways true. Um, we have in the UK uh, some, you know, our illiteracy rates in the general population are quite high anyway. Um, but in the prison population, so in the in the general population, are about sixteen percent, and in the prison population, they're about sixty percent. Um, so that's a huge amount, a huge portion of um, prisoners in this country struggle with literacy. Um, about twenty five percent of them have a reading age below that of a seven year old. That you know they tend to have fairly low literacy, and there have been links between um, having low reading ability and crime itself. Although the causality is a bit confusing um, and and so when sound training wanted to target a middle to high ability learners some of the staff in prison and some of the people that were discussing it found it a bit contentious because they thought perhaps you know if you want to be targeting those people that really struggle with literacy because they're going to be the people that most struggle when they go out into the world and try and function in society um, but when they actually managed to recruit some learners um, in each prison it turned out that they had quite a wide range of abilities because the way that they might get people into doing education in prison isn't perhaps as um, regimented and able to select for ability as you might want it to be. It's more sort of like get who you can get and who's still available on the day and you know, you're fitting in with a load of other things. It's not that easy to move um, the men around the prison and get them to a certain place on, on time. Um, so they had EAL learners, they had um, a few guys who were completely in a university module you know, which obviously indicates they have some qualifications beforehand and they have a literacy ability that helps them. Um, with that, they had um, a range of reading ages at the start of the programme, ranging from, I think, about nine years old to about 18 years old. Mm. Um, so they got a real range in there, and um, crucially, all of them, regardless of their original ability, made improvements in their reading age um, and other skills that they sort of reported improving, like spelling um, and their ability to read out loud and things. Um, so I think it does transfer into schools. When sound training is selling its programme, it is still targeting middle to high ability learners because that's perhaps where they have the most, the best effects and that's what they're tailored to improve. These kids are perhaps plateauing even though they're really capable. Um, they also have a programme for um, EAL, English as Additional Language Learners, um, which is slightly separate. But I think it does have implications um, for teachers and other people who work with young people to take away from um, th this report and when they're thinking about the programme and how it could be useful for them because it kind of shows that this method of like high challenge and small but perhaps, perhaps repetitive um, but short time period games and activities um, can have an effect on sort of any ability of learner. 
When we're talking about high ability and low ability, as defined by what? So I think in this, when I'm talking about it in the case of this report, um, it's their sort of their ability to read at the beginning of the programme. So their reading age, which was te- we tested for this particular evaluation in sound training, uses the RAT4 test, which is a word reading um, ability test. So RAT4, what is that? R-A-T? W-R-A-T. W-R-A-T. Um, word reading ability test, I want to say. Um, it's definitely word reading. It might be ability test, um, and it's basically they just read. You just read a list of words. Um, you don't have to know what they mean. It doesn't test comprehension. Um, tests of comprehension are not very well developed, and the sort of reliability and validity of some of them are questionable. They also take a really long time to administer. Um, so they use just that that word reading and um, and got the results from that. So when I'm talking about low ability. I would be talking about anybody that has a low reading age at the beginning. And obviously they've shown, when you use the word ability, they've shown they have the ability to improve, but their ability when reading at the beginning was perhaps lower than some of the other ones that we might um, refer to as high ability. I think the programme isn't designed, this this specific part of the programme isn't designed for people that that can't read, if you will. You know, they have to be able to when they go into the programme, read one of the cards with the syllables on it. They might pronounce it incorrectly, um, and some of them have multiple pronunciations, but um, you, they, they need to know what those letters are and be able to read to a certain extent. So supposing, uh, I don't know, a teacher or someone who's schools-based or alternative provision-based or whatever it is is listening, and they have uh, people in their class who have a range of abilities regards to reading but they want to improve it because you're saying that it works mm. for a variety of things mm. maybe their school is too stingy to pay for something like sound training i don't know yeah. but what are the key things that they could take away to try and help to improve things yeah so i think this program is is works with very small groups of um, children or learners and when i think that's when you're really trying to target improving um learners on something very specific, small groups often work quite well. So I would say they would need to design some sort of activity um, where they have those learners in small groups. And I would make the activities quite short, like no more than, say, a minute to three to four minutes, um, and run it in kind of like a competitive way, competitive like against the, the, um, the group, what you got last week compared to what you're going to get this week use things like timers, sound timers, which are actually quite standard practice. I don't think anybody's going to be like revolutionised by that. You know, we do it in phonics a lot. Um, and then something that I thought was quite key that you don't see in interventions in schools a lot um, is, is this re- repeating the activity. You'd think it would get boring, but actually I think the learners really enjoyed the opportunity to correct their mistake. So is that in the same session? Yeah, so literally we do sort of like, OK, we can do ten spellings, we go through them, like any spelling test, however you would want it to be done, you split the word up as you say it, they write it down. Then you go through it, give them the right answers, then hide the right answers and be like, we're going to do it this time really fast. And they've just seen it. So, you know, hopefully if the work is pitched at the right ability, you're just stretching them just a little bit. Having just seen it, they will be able to get 10 out of 10, perhaps 9 out of 10 if they make a little mistake. And I think they really enjoyed being able to get that confidence boost from originally being like, oh, I've only got six, I've only got seven. Oh, I can't do this. It's like, well, actually, you can do it. You just need the practice and you just need to have it there. And you're also doing that immediate practice um, rather than learning 
the way you did it wrong. Because quite often, if a kid does something, spells something wrong, and you say, oh no, it should have been an I, not an E, oh, look at how it is, they look at it, you know, for 10 seconds. They spent more time and more brain power on when they wrote the spelling wrong, and it, it's not too difficult to see how they might therefore do it wrong the next time. Whereas if they've just seen it and they know they're about to do it again, you could see them, they'd be like trying to take photographs with their mind. You know, they just said, oh, I'm going to do it, okay, I'm going to do it, hold it in my head, hold it in my head, and then they practice doing it the right way. Um, and I think I've never, I've never really seen it done that way. In, when I used to teach phonics, we used to do, you know, self-correction. Um, but they wouldn't be writing the whole word again. They might sort of like scribble things out to, you know, be aware of what they've got wrong. But they didn't get that opportunity to go straight away and practice it the right way. So that's kind of a key thing that you think is different that doesn't necessarily happen in schools that could be a rule. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's, it sometimes feels like, oh, it's really time-consuming or they'll get bored. In my experience, somewhat surprisingly, they didn't get bored and you can do it really quickly. I'm sure some people do it occasionally, but it's something that I don't think that we think about. So speed, competition, yep. repetition, yep. Um, and the repetition ties into opportunity to quickly do it or try and do it right, is that...? Yes, yeah, give them the opportunity to do it the right way. Um, even if you've just given them the right answer, then they do it. And I think also this high challenge thing um, is really important. Maybe perhaps if you've got what you might be considering low ability learners in whatever subject, don't be afraid to give them a high challenge, but just break it down for them. So the words that they were using in sound training were complicated words. Can you give me an example of one? So what they, what they do in the programme is they, they take words and they break them down to syllables and they talk about the meaning of each syllable. So for example, legislation. Now, when, when they show the learners this word, none of them had ever seen it before, they couldn't read it quite often. It's when the sound trainer read it. Some of them had to have heard it. Think about it, they've been in courts quite a lot. Um, and But they didn't really know what it meant. They were like, oh, it's something something to do with like law like in the court. Um, so if you break it down, legis means law. Um, lat means to bring or carry. So legis, lay, we pronounce it as lation in that, but the lat bit means to bring or carry. Like and, translation? Um, the same kind yeah, of? Yeah, yeah. So, and, um, the, so yeah, that would be to bring or carry. So trans means across, so that would be to bring or carry across. And shun means the actual process of. So legislation being the actual process of bringing law. Okay, so that's... It, and then you have to make a little bit of a leap with your mind about, okay, what does legislation actually mean? But if you have it in the context of text, that person is now able to figure it out. And just like you did then, when you took translation, they might have learned transportation, knowing that trans means across. So translation, to bring something across, shouldn't, if you looked at it in the context of, you know, translation from English to French, like, okay, you're bringing something across from English to French. Um... And most, you know, most words do it. Some words are more obvious in their meaning when you break them down like that. But it's more challenge to give them those words than to just be giving them sort of, I don't know, short words or simple words or taking those complex words out because that person struggles to read. You have to give them the tools to do it independently and make them feel like, oh, I'm doing quite complex stuff here and it's not stuff that I've seen before, therefore there's interest in it. And I think quite often in schools, when we have what we consider to be a low ability group, or we're running an intervention with children that are struggling, we perhaps sometimes try to keep things simple, but it's more a case of breaking things down, even though they're quite complicated. So, the RP, 
as you were talking, it made me uh, think about my children were talking to me the other day, mm-hmm. and my my partner had a go at me because um, I said to my three year old about I don't think that's relevant. <laughs> so, like, um, you do know you're talking to a three year old, right? And I was like, well, if you don't ever say the word, how are they going to know? Yeah, absolutely. And I used to when I because I used to teach earlier, so I was surrounded by four year olds, and sometimes I wouldn't make the effort to bring my language down because otherwise they're never going to hear those words and it's totally fine what do you mean by relevant and you can explain it to them try to explain it to them without using the word relevant i mean that it's not relevant relevant is that it's not relevant for them. <laughs> i think also um with students that struggle and we use phonics which is great and you know works for many children but we don't seem to have something to bridge the gap between phonics and then just sight reading longer words and you obviously can't break down long words into sounds because by the time you get to the end of the word, you won't be hearing the sounds from the beginning of the word anymore. Um, whereas this takes the syllables. But I think there are children across the country in year four, year five sometimes even, when their peers have stopped doing phonics a couple of years ago and they're still taken out into event- interventions and exposed to the same sort of, you know, the same activities and the same, you know, using sounds and therefore the same words and saying usually short, simple words, because otherwise you can't be using um, sounds to decode them. And, the, I mean, there's many contentious issues within that, and much of a debate, but I think that this use of syllables just bridged that gap for um, kids that perhaps struggle, and also allows access into those higher-level words and that higher challenge. There was something that was interesting in the report that surprised me was kind of... The, it was a positive factor that there wasn't any particular accreditation. Um, mm. I found that quite surprising. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So it wasn't something that I was you know, particularly looking for. Um, and one of my questions in the interviews would have just been, like, what are the good things about this programme? What are the not-so-good things? And quite consistently, quite a few learners and the staff, which was also interesting that the staff thought this, said that the fact that the there was no final exam and no official accreditation accreditation of this course um, was a really good thing. They did get a certificate at the end and some sort of recognition that they've completed it, but there isn't sort of like a pass-fail, it's just that you've done it. Um, and while qualifications are great, um, they, they found that because there was no pressure in terms of pass or fail, it first of all, it didn't put the learners off thinking, oh, I'm not going to be able to do this, because there is no question of whether you'll be able to do it or not, because you can't fail. So it didn't put that initial barrier. And I think the learners talked more specifically about how, you know, because they didn't feel nervous, they were able to perform, and they were able to just get on with it. Um, and because, because there was no exam, because there was no testing, and, you know, no continuous evaluation, if they didn't understand something, they would just ask. Or that you know they were free to admit that they they didn't understand it, and they really felt like it supported them in doing better. And that might not necessarily be because getting qualifications and having accredited courses is a bad thing, but perhaps for this particular group of learners, when when they're in education, it's always a specific course working towards something. You know, it's not like school where you're just there for your general education. It will be like class for a number of weeks to work towards something, and there's always that pressure that if you're not getting it if you're not doing very well you might fail and this might be wasted time so is that is that the learning experience for them in prison specifically i think yeah i think it is for most of the thing you know they'll be doing their um, you know the level one or level two english and maths or even when they're doing these university modules which are quite high level you know they'll have to do some sort of exam or coursework which is pass or fail 
And I think they found this to be more of a sort of rounded, you know, they're just learning and it was about the process of learning rather than the process of getting something. And then they could apply that however they wanted to. And they did talk about how they'd applied it in, be it their accredited courses, like in their English class or something, or in their sort of more recreational reading. Um, but they were free to think about it in that way rather than think about it like the purpose of this is to pass that exam. So I'm thinking about it in terms of, you know, disengaged young people. Do you think, what do you think the takeaways or the kind of parallels are? I mean, I think it's difficult because I think if, even if, even if young people are disengaged and perhaps some of them do feel like, you know, higher up in the school system, they're working primarily for, you know, a qualification or a GCSE or whatever it might be. But if they're still in full-time education, I don't know whether they'll have that much um, pressure because it's so, you know, in the short term, they're not always doing exams, it's kind of a bit, a bit long term and their education is a bit rounded. Um, but I think it's, it's good that it doesn't have the pressure, that you can't, you can't be wrong, you can't get this wrong, you can't fail at it, you can make mistakes and you can ask questions and learn from it. And I think we all know that's, you know, good practice and that's how we want students to fail all the time. And in class they can learn, they can make mistakes and all of that. But there is always just that final pressure of there's going to be a time where if you make a mistake, you're going to pay for that mistake in terms of what mark you're going to get. Whereas in this, there was never any pressure. And I think the enjoyment was really key. And that lack of pressure was probably quite key to their enjoyment um, and therefore their engagement. Also, I'm wondering about, you know, the particular dynamics of, um, of people in prison, but also, you know, we spoke earlier about, um, I can't remember what phrase you used, but the kind of, not hard to reach, but maybe the more... Um, what phrase did I use? I can't remember what the phrase was now. Difficult customers. Difficult customers, that's exactly <laughs> it, okay. So more difficult customers for, you know, I'm thinking of a few students like that who I've taught previously, and it's, it's very much about not losing face. So yeah. if you take away um, that oh, you might fail aspect, then maybe it gives them a bit more free space and freedom to try something different and not worry about losing face in front of their peers. Yeah, definitely. And I think some of them probably did feel that. And I think the, the competitive team element and the stuff that we've already talked about, about repeating the activity, also helped with that losing face thing. Because it's like, what do you get in your spelling test? Well, I got 10 the second time. doesn't matter if you got 6 the first time. You haven't lost face. Nobody's asking them to, you know, say what they've got anyway. It's quite, you know, just deal with your own stuff, mark your own stuff. But some of them do say, and can't help but share, even if they might be quite embarrassed to say they've got something. But when you give them the opportunity all the time to do it well by repeating it, or you give them the opportunity to support each other and everything's in a little group, then there is no losing face. And I think, yeah, the lack of accreditation, accreditation, I can't say that word, which is hilarious when we're in discussion about it. Accreditation. Um, accreditation um, helped with that not losing face, yeah, definitely. That's interesting. Yeah, that, that surprised me a great deal. And um, the other thing that I found quite interesting when I looked at the report was the highest increase in reading ages was in people with low baseline scores and EAL, but it was lowest in uh, prisoners with, that were native English speakers. Mm. That was very interesting. So mm. can you talk a little bit more about that? So it's quite, it's, it was interesting. I think we have to take a certain amount of caution with the small sample size mm. of, I think there are maybe four or five EAL learners in the group of about 34, 35 guys that completed the programme. Um, and they, they did make really good progress. Those guys I know in particular were quite committed um, to the programme. 
But um, it was interesting because it's not designed to be used with non-native English speakers. But those guys had fairly good um, English, sort of already conversational, definitely, and had read before in English. So they were, you know, not not really, really sort of first first time reading in English. Um, and it just happened that those guys find it really useful. Most of them were Eastern European, Polish, I think a couple of them were Polish. Um, and one of them even found that in Poland he is dyslexic. Sometimes when I look at the Polish language I assume everyone's dyslexic because it looks crazy, but you know, I imagine they're not. Um, but in by using this programme and learning to read in English, he, he wasn't dyslexic and he was ma- making really good progress. Um, and I think they obviously had lower reading abilities because they were um, because they also had the AL barrier. So they had so, lower reading abilities in English. Yes, in English. Yeah, we did. We did discuss this. So their reading age being tested in English was low, and therefore they had more room to make that improvement. Whereas obviously the guys that started off were quite high. Who impressively, even the ones that had the maximum reading age, improved within that bracket, improved their raw score, if you will. Um, still keeping the same reading age, um, but the ones that obviously start off with that lower reading ability in English um, ha- have more space to improve. Mm. But what their reading ability in Poland or wherever they are from in their native language would have been, I couldn't say. It would could, could be the same, but could be completely different. I mean, I imagine my reading age in, say, like, Polish is... Poor. Pretty poor. Mine's rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> Fact. <laughs> <laughs> so, Elliot, in terms of... This report was really fascinating and interesting because, firstly, it's not an area that I'm very familiar with. I'm not, inter- I'm not well versed in the prison population, for example. Um, what was the thing that you learned and were surprised by if we haven't already discussed it? Um, so I think for me, you know, it's not it's not something that I you know never been in a prison before, never done much about prison education. It was a diversifying of my interests, should we say? Um, and there were quite a lot of things that surprised me. Um, and a lot just being in the prison made, made me think a little bit about, um, you know, prison education and prisons in general. And I think that's a question for everybody and of interest to most people that will be listening to this, to, you know, think about whether do people in prison deserve an education? Is it a good use of resources? Um, and, you know, sh- should, should we be looking at it when we've got kids in school that really need resources and, need, you know, you need funding and all sorts? Um, so I think my, the first stereotype that I definitely had broken was the fact that I thought they would be really disengaged. Now, while they were sceptical, I would say they were relatively easy to engage. And when you spoke to them, they did, they did have motivation um, to get better at things in order to have a better life. Now, again, small sample size and probably chosen to a certain extent on the fact that they were willing to engage with the programme. I'm sure there's plenty of people in prison that wouldn't want to engage with it and would have been much more difficult about it. But at the end of the day, we do have those people in our prison populations that are willing and motivated to try and get better at things. I think we need to think about, are we giving them the best opportunities to do so? Because although it's quite, you know, difficult... To swallow sometimes to think, oh, well, you know, if somebody's committed some sort of heinous or, you know, heinous crime um, or, you know, hurt somebody in any way, what did they really deserve? But at the end of the day, it's everybody's problem because, you know, it costs over £30,000 per year to have a prisoner in prison. Our prisons are overpopulated and they're not contributing to the economy while they're in prison. Um, being in prison increases your likelihood of committing a crime. So we don't really want people in prison anyway. Um, and we certainly want to do something to reduce reoffending when they come out, because 
they're just future victims, future potential victims. Um, so when, when we think, oh, you know, just don't bother with them, well, actually, everyone's going to pay if we don't bother with them. Um, and, and they were, you know, re- really engaged. I was also quite surprised about the lack of stuff that they had before, the lack of stuff that they had to engage them. And um, the prison system is undergoing sort of quite a lot of reform, including reform to the prison education system. So um, now is an interesting time to watch what we'll be putting in. Because at the end of the day, if we're going to spend money on it, if we're going to spend money on prison education and giving prisoners something, I really would rather that it was a really good thing that had an impact because the money's going there anyway and we really want to be thinking about what is it that they need because some of them do want something and therefore we can have benefits for everybody if we give them something that helps them um, and therefore you know, reduces the risk of them coming out and causing more issues for everybody. So, excuse me, sorry. So for somebody who started their kind of career at the opposite end of the spectrum, yeah. um, very, very small children, um, what, you know, is there any link between the two that you can see in your mind or that um, things that you wish you'd known when you were an early list um, teacher or something along those lines? Yeah, I think there's, def- there's definitely some links, but I always, I always think that there's links between what we do in early years and say like primary, secondary education or even adult education and that sometimes we sort of like, you know, not to sound incredibly cheesy, but like lose the inner child because, um, you know, like in early years we had just had loads of fun all the time, everything has to be super fun and I know we have, you know, a, we concentrate on engagement in adult education and higher up the school years but sometimes we, we lose a bit of the making everything fun and I think that's something that sound training the programme definitely tries to do, making it fun and I think it's part of why it works, and I think it's part of why early years works. Um, well, I think there was also there's also something to be said for even though that it's at the opposite end of the spectrum, you have difficult customers even in your four-year-olds as well, and it it really is about putting in quite tailored time to get them excited about something and give them the opportunity to learn something which challenges them, and it just harks back to that thing that we've been talking about quite a lot, whereas you know, even when you've had kids for a couple of months, they still get separated into higher and lower ability groups. And, you know, things are simple in reception. So that's a real time where the ones doing the simplest things of the simple things that you're doing are doing really simple things. And perhaps that's not that fair. And perhaps if I had known when I was an early years teacher to better think about how you break things down, even the, the high challenge stuff, I might have had a, a better go, a better sort of pedagogical view of differentiation in that in that way. I think it kind of helped my thinking on that. That's an interesting point, actually. Ellie, thank you very much. It's been wonderful talking to you. No worries, it's been very good. Hey, people. I love making this podcast. If you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoy making it, there's a few things that you can do. One, subscribe. Press the subscribe button on iTunes or wherever you listen to it. Two, Share. Share this episode with somebody who you know will find it interesting or is affected by the specific issues covered. Free. Review. Write a review or leave a comment. Also feel free to contact us via the links on the show notes. Thanks a lot. Bye.